0: the cosmic void, onward it stretches into infinity, matched in depth and vastness by but one thing, the human imagination. We present now a story from this, the greater of two endless realms. Join us as we enter a gate beyond. Have you ever visited an abandoned town or building? Time can seem to stand still in such places, as if the numbers on the clock have no meaning. Our story this week involves one man's return to the abandoned township of his youth, only to discover that its house of worship houses a sinister secret. Taken from the collection The New Lovecraft Circle, edited by Robert M. Price, copyright 2011. This is The Church at Garlock's Bend by David Kaufman. Above Scranton, the Susquehanna is narrower and more winding, and it is far more interesting as it switchbacks its way from the northwest out of New York. Then is the slower and more stately part of the river to the south. It flows through land that, for a highly populated state, is sometimes surprisingly primitive, and it is not too difficult, were you to travel its length through the hills of north central Pennsylvania, to come to one of a dozen or more small towns, towns with sometimes only 20 or so houses, with perhaps a store and a church, towns that time and progress seem to have ignored or forgotten and the people who live in them, or around them, while never overtly unfriendly, for reasons of their own, keep to themselves, do not seem to care for much of the rest of the world. Above Skinner's Eddy, Garlock's Bend was such a town. I grew up on a farm just a few miles downstream, and my first memories of it are as lazy and slow as the summer heat in the green hills. It is a ghost town now, Just a bunch of tired and worn out buildings, some of them leaning precariously, rotted wood on rotten foundations. But when I was young, it was vital and as prosperous as such a small town so out of the way could possibly be. It was the river that did it. It was the river and the thing that happened in the river that took the spirit out of the town and caused its people to, I don't know, to just move away. One family, sometimes two families at a time. And then they were all gone. The town was abandoned. Barlock's Bend was right on the river, or on a swell of it. We locals with typical Pennsylvania Dutch enthusiasm actually called it a lake, although it was only just a very wide, slow spot where the river came thrashing out of the tight hills, calming quickly, deepening, and widening. And the church was tight down against the water, shaded and cooled by a strand of large sycamore. There were things to look at from a piece downstream, the trees, the town, the church, and the high hills behind the whole of it. There were things that could make you love Garlock's Bend. We were one of the first families to move away, and although I am sure we fussed about it, we children were never told why we left. There was some vague talk about my father getting a job down in Harrisburg, but I thought without ever saying it that there was some other reason. In the weeks or ten days before our departure, my parents seemed quite agitated, especially so my father. Often they would stop talking if we came near them, or they would change the subject, talking a little too fast and a little too loudly, and we were in the last few days sternly forbidden to go anywhere near the river. There was something so urgent in that command that we never questioned it. Anyway, we left. I would have much preferred to stay in those familiar hills near the friends of all my youth, but I had the fickle, inattentive mind of a youngster, and soon I had some new playmates down in Harrisburg. Bit by bit, I came to realize that Garlock's Bend was not the only place in the world. Bit by bit, I put it out of my mind. Now I am a mathematician by profession. In certain narrow circles I am quite well known, and so it was not at all unusual for me to find myself invited to lecture this past summer session at Staunton, a small liberal arts college just a dozen or so miles downriver from Garlock's Bend. I would once again, by lucky chance, visit the land of my youth, and while I might never have returned solely to visit my hometown, I was happy to avail myself of the chance, now that it seemed so convenient. Curiously, after I accepted the position, and started almost at the moment I accepted, I began to feel a much stronger urge to return. I quickly came to the point that I could not get Barlock's bend out of my mind. And as I remembered things long ago childishly dismissed, as I remembered the river, I had strange, concomitant feelings of uneasiness, of unbalance, of distaste even, beginning to grow within me. It was, the whole of it, a curious mix of pleasure and displeasure, of delight and dread, and had I known what was in store for me, I would have yielded to these suddenly mixed and mostly unhappy feelings and stayed away. I wish I had. When you visit Garlock's Bend, you drive down out of extremely high hills to the valley below. As the descent begins, you come suddenly out of the thick green forest and the whole of the valley then seems to open up, and you catch glimpses of the town now and again at overlooks as the narrow road curls downward, vaguely following the churning and thrashing of the rapidly falling river into the valley far below. I stopped at several of these overlooks the day I arrived, Pleasure at first, because I had not even seen the town in some forty years, and never from that vantage point, and then I stopped because I felt myself drawn to the overlooks. It was as if I wanted to take in the whole of the town before I came to it, as if I wanted to revisit at once all of my lost past. But nothing that I could see from the high hills told me anything but that the town was indeed deserted, decrepit, downfalling. I was overcome with sudden feelings of hopelessness, of sadness, and of a strange kind of loneliness, and I was astonished at the intensity of these feelings. When I had come down out of the hills, I dropped off of the main highway onto the old dirt road, crawled along the river, past thick stands of hemlock and thin scraggly brush, until it came to Garlock's Bend, and then I made my way carefully down the only street of the silent little town. It was like driving backwards into time. I eased my car around the debris that was strewn about haphazardly. It looked as if no one had even been on Main Street for years. I parked just opposite the remains of Miller's, Carlox Ben's only hardware store. The Saturday mornings I had spent there with my father. And now the roof of the front porch had fallen down and the large picture window was broken. I could hardly see into the building, but it seemed probable to me that looters had taken all that they possibly could, and then time and the dust had gotten the better of what was left. I spent an hour or more just walking the length of that desolate town, peering into any window, any nook or cranny that I might, sudden little insights, like memories prickling at my consciousness, like long forgotten melodies. It was a bittersweet pastime. Suddenly, there it was off ahead of me in the distance, down tight to the edge of the water, the church of all my youth. In every one of my fantasies concerning Garlock's Bend, I had always come again to the church. It had been the center of so much that I remembered with pleasure. Soon I was standing down by the water, looking up through the trees at the double doors and the wooden cross just above them. The church somehow seemed new and clean, I remember noting how curious that was and how small and timid the whole of it made me feel. The only notion that I had of sound was the gentle lapping of the river. No other sound. Long years before I had climbed the few steps before the church dozens of times and more. Hundreds of times. Now circumstances had changed me so completely that I marveled at how, like an interloper, I felt myself to be. Also, I had a curious sense of whimsy because of the poor condition of the steps. Odd, I thought, that I might go crashing through and break an arm or a leg. The thought made me doubly cautious because I had such a thing happened, it would have been dreadful. From all that I had seen, I was certain that there was no one around and all of that desolation to rescue me. I moved carefully through the old building, conscious of the dust, the ubiquitous dust, and the mordant smells of the past. It is curious how smells alone can pull lost memories back into our consciousness with a swiftness that astonishes. The smells of that old church took me quickly and completely. I soon found myself sitting in the dusty pew that our family had used long ago, and I admit to being almost overcome with nostalgia. I do not know how long I sat there, lost in those memories of my youth some tens of minutes at least. It was then so quiet that I could hear the stillness of the place ringing in my ears, and it seemed to me, lost as I was in all of that stillness, that if I really listened, if I really tried to hear, just vaguely and far away I could hear, with pristine clarity, the voices of my folks and my friends of long ago, singing all of the old songs. I wanted to weep, as do we all at such times, I suspect, for my lost innocence. How temporal life suddenly seemed to me. I was brought round rather quickly. I had thought myself to be totally alone, in that silent church and in that forgotten town. I never would have dreamed it could be otherwise. But suddenly, from somewhere in the cellar of the church, just beneath me, I distinctly heard a low, heavy thud as if something of extreme weight just fallen. A few seconds of utter silence, and then I heard the thing slam again, more clearly still, and then once more. To say that I was startled by that knocking would be something of an understatement, but I remember that at the time I was only slightly frightened. There are times in our lives when without reason we act foolishly, even irrationally, We do things we could not possibly later explain. Now I know how irrational was my next act. Then it seemed to me to be the most natural thing in the world to do. At the time, my immediate and only thought was that I should go down into the cellar and find the source of the noise. Never mind the fact that I was alone and in a totally isolated place, a place where there could be no strange sounds, a place where there could not possibly be anything to make such noises. I quickly found the door to the cellar. It was stuck from disuse, but with a series of impatient little jerks I managed to get it open just wide enough to squeak through. I could only imagine how foolish I must look, pulling and fretting all that crepitating door, flustering the dry dust that swirled in the little shafts of sunlight came through the simple stained glass windows. There was only silence now from below silence so loud as to almost ring in my ears. The little wooden steps down into the cellar were narrow and badly rotted. I thought again of crashing through steps and there being no one who would ever know, no one who could ascribe an end to me. The thought did not stay with me for long, so determined was I. Hello, I called. Hello, is anyone down there? that could be was something that did not occur to me to wonder about in my excitement. The floor above was covered with a thin layer of grey dust which only I had disturbed. All tracks were mine. I was indeed alone. Now on the steps I noticed that the dust, which above was powdery and dry, was almost black and was oily or even waxy in texture from the dampness and decay below the ground level and the air was musty and stale, as if it had been bottled in for years. I moved down the stairs carefully. The black dust was everywhere. It almost seemed slippery, and I had no wish to fall. Hello, I called again, and then, as I began to realize how foolish the thought was that I might not be alone, sounds or no sounds, I smiled at my ingeniousness. The only light in the cellar came from the two small windows at ground level. They were wretchedly dirty, but there was certainly light enough to see by, and quickly I was standing at the bottom of the wooden steps, in a state of excitement now about what I might find, and not a little impressed by my own daring. The walls of the cellar were everywhere made of cut sandstone. Massive, those walls, at least a foot thick, judging from the depth of the windows and everywhere gray, red, and covered with that same oily, black patina, and sweating moisture and dankness and mildew, until the whole of the cellar seemed a dismal wet dungeon. The smell was awful. It was not the healthy, acrid smell of age in the room above. This was the musty odor of rottenness and decay. And it seemed to me that the stench got worse and worse as I clambered down the fragile little steps, almost as if I were layered like a thickness of slate, and were denser at the bottom. I looked carefully around the room, for what I did not know. I began to feel more than a bit uneasy now because of the stench and because I could see nothing that might have caused such a knocking as I had heard. I knew, as clearly as I know I am one day to die, that I had heard those noises but there was nothing very unusual down there, nothing that was not covered with the dust of almost half a century. Nor was there a sign of any disturbance. All was as time and neglect should have made it. Across the room was just one little table that I could see. It was the only furniture in the whole of the cellar, but it was at least something, so I moved closer. The table was ordinary and of little note, But beneath it, curiously, rested a wooden box that seemed half full of set mortar. A few small hand tools, sledge, a trowel, a small claw hammer, lay carelessly strewn beside the box, everything long covered with a distasteful dust. It was on the next wall, and it was the cause of everything. It was the river wall, actually, fairly close to the table, On this was a clumsy, bricked-in patch, some four feet high by three feet in width. The sandstone blocks were patched in with a facing of ordinary red brick. The thing was quite visible, in spite of its coating of the loathsome dust, and so unusual that I felt a very real slash of fear. I flushed coldly when I saw it. By this time, I was sufficiently off-balance from horrible knocks and nauseated by the pungent smells that I was trembling. I stared at the patch for some time before deciding that I could bring myself to examine it. I moved closer. There was some loose brick and a half-empty bag of cement on the floor just the one side. And although the whole area was obscured by the heavy layer of oppressive dust, Patch gave every indication of being a jerry-built job. I could tell easily that the mortar between the bricks was not struck, the floor in the vicinity had apparently not been cleaned after the job was finished, and spilled little piles of mortar and the general cluttered look of the area suggested at best a slipshod piece of work, at worst a job frantically undertaken and frantically finished. The bricks were recently bulged, as if the patch had almost been burst through, and where the bricks were loosened The greasy dust was now darker, even more greasy looking, wet looking, and it was apparent to me that water was leaking through the bricks. And then the thing happened that I shall never forget. At first it was no more than an awareness that came to me, a feeling that something was amiss, something was not right. I remember it caused me to stop all movement and listen and then a slight whisper of a noise that grew and grew and became more real. A heavy gurgling sound it was, a kind of grinding or rushing from behind the wall. It increased and increased in intensity until, in terror, I tumbled backward, and then the next thing I knew, I was frantically crayfishing away from the hull. There was a deafening crash against them. The patch seemed to give, several inches at least, in a sudden frightening bulge, the result of the awful smash it endured, and water spurted out from one side, as if the whole of it was about to yield to the heavy force in the water. I lurched backward crazily, convulsing, arching for air to breathe, until I slammed into the steps. I could not take my eyes from the hideous spurting water. In these few seconds, enough had come through the wall to cover the floor. All I could think of was that it was about to burst its way completely through the weakened patch and engulf me. I was convinced in that second that I really was about to die. I turned and scrambled up the oily black steps, thrust myself violently at the door and strained to be through it. My lungs and legs ached with pain. I raced the length of the church, almost vaulted the few little steps outside, and stopped, exhausted and nauseated, just short of the river. I grabbed at one of the trees and literally hugged it to keep from falling. I wept from relief. My clothing was covered with black, slimy filth from the dust and water. My head was pounding, my flesh crawling. For some long moments, all I could manage was to cling to that tree and just gulp in deep, delicious lungfuls of clean, fresh air. How good that was. With benign indifference, a gust of wind made a deep swirl of a wave on the lake, then Gone. Still I clung to the tree as it came round and I began to breathe a bit more easily I knew that somehow I was free of whatever it was that had made the great and terrible knocking that I had heard that I had heard and even felt the power of I was outside the church and I was free Essentially that is what happened to me the day that I went into the church at Garlock's Bend I have not shortened or embellished the details. All of it is truth. I saw nothing. There were no ghosties or ghoulies, no hairy antlered monstrosities from God alone knows where, trying to swallow me up or wrench away my immortal soul. I never saw anything. All the same, I heard the noises. I endured that awful stench, and I saw the wall give. Something was down there. Something. Still holding on to the tree, I began to calm. I grew less frightened. I looked up at the doors to the church, the cross above them, the motionless branches. All of it appeared so serene and so wholesome. And with the setting sun at the end of the valley and the absolute stillness of the lake, the ghost town of Garlock's Bend seemed to me to be almost innocent. But I could never again believe that. I knew. I knew for certain. Aching almost as if I had been physically beaten, I limped wearily up Main Street past all of the abandoned businesses and homes, this time all but oblivious to the utter and complete desolation of the town. I sat for some minutes in my car, still in something of a daze. Now that I no longer needed adrenaline, it left me and I was suddenly completely exhausted. And then... In awe of all that had happened, feeling very alone and very old, I eased the car into gear, pulled out onto the pathetic little debris-cluttered street, and left Garlock's Bend forever. I did go to Staunton. I taught the summer semester as I had intended. I saw no point in doing otherwise. When I was not teaching, I thought a great deal about what had happened to me, about what had caused the awesome noises, about the terrors I felt so thoroughly. Those terrors were replaced with anger, and then in time with a kind of sad acceptance. I decided to keep my story to myself. I was afraid, I suppose, that no one would believe me. And in the end, I had no proof of anything. Then, one day... Just a few days short of the end of the class and my proposed return to Pittsburgh, I was sitting in the oak grove, enjoying my usual lunch of hard cheese and good bread. Staunton is a fairly wealthy school, and so the gardens of the oak grove are well kept. It is not unusual to see a whole group of workers, pruning, weeding, planting, keeping to their tasks, laughing among themselves, all the while inevitably working. It is the Pennsylvania Dutch ethic and it is still typical of the area. One of the oldest of the crew, however, I had been feeling for several noon times, had been doing his best to keep his eyes off me, but with little success. Once or twice I caught him in a downright stare, and while he quickly looked away and avoided my glance, it was apparent that he had a deep interest in me. I was more intrigued than irritated. On this present day he seemed as if he could avoid my company no longer, and at the lunch break he came up and sat on the bench just opposite mine, unpacked his bucket very slowly and precisely, and stared at me while he chewed resolutely on what appeared to be a sandwich of Lebanon bologna. I sensed his exquisite shyness and knew that the first move had to come from me. Fine afternoon, I tried. He nodded, and then with a wry smile, I think I know you, he said. I think you must be Eugene Leventry's oldest boy. I was stunned. How in the world did you know that? I cried. who are you, anyway? You wouldn't remember me, he said, his voice thick Pennsylvania Dutch. He shook his head slowly. You were just a little fellow when you he left here. You wouldn't know me at all. I'm Amos Myers. I knew your daddy. Of course, I cried. Of course I remember you. I knew you was his boy, he said. He smiled broadly and came and sat by my side. His big paw of a hand almost crushed mine with enthusiasm as we greeted each other. Then began a conversation that lasted for over an hour. The Pennsylvania Dutch are very orderly and very polite, and so we began by dealing with all the usual pleasantries. I asked his history and he asked of mine. I learned that his nephew, Aaron Myers, had just frightened the whole family by having a heart attack. He was related by marriage to my second cousin on my father's side over to Skinner's Eddie, and did I know that he had gone all through college and was an animal doctor? He was coming around, then, and going to live, thank the good boy. For my part, I revealed to Amos, because he genuinely did seem to want to know, that my parents were both dead, that I was alone, that I had never married. During all of that, I was deciding to abandon my reticence and bring up the subject of Garlock's Bend. Somehow, I came to feel as if I had to, maybe because he knew my father. I've been teaching here all summer, I began. I, uh, I went to Garlock's Bend when I first arrived. I hesitated for just a few moments, and then added, I visited the church. He stopped working on the sandwich. There is something in that church, I said carefully, that does not like people. He was quiet for some moments. The muscles in his face seemed to tighten. He put down the sandwich. You should not have gone there, he said quietly. That place is shunned. I'm sorry, I said. There's no way I could have known that. I've been away from Garlock's Bend for so many years. And then it all came out. The whole of it. Soon, I could not stop and did not want to stop. I told him about the awesome heavy knocking about the hideous odors in that cellar, and I tried to describe for him the terror I felt when I was convinced I was about to die. But I never saw anything, I concluded, embarrassed, almost as if apologizing. I never saw a thing. The whole of Amos's body came round as he turned stiff-necked to stare at me for at least a minute. He looked very grave. Never saw anything. No, one ever saw anything, he said finally. No one ever saw nothing. He sat quietly. I could tell that he was deciding whether it was proper. I was essentially a stranger, and that made confiding in me a very large venture for him. When he began, I thought at first that he sounded unconcerned, as if he were describing something that had affected him only from a distance, as if over the years it had become a sort of fairy tale something he took pleasure in telling to worthy strangers, like a soldier might rehearse a battle of little ultimate importance. I was wrong. When he had finished retelling it for me, he was weeping, weeping for his own lost town, and for his lost friends, and for much more than that, and I knew that I had somehow found someone who understood, far better than I ever could, what was happening and what had happened to so many years before at Garlock's Bend. "'We knew something was there, though,' he began. "'We knew it right enough. Something unreal. "'We knew it when Joe Michaels was trapped in the lake "'just a little ways from Miller's Hardware, "'suspended out there like something down under the water "'had him by by the legs and wouldn't let go. "'He was waist-deep in the water, "'out maybe fifteen feet from the shore and just held there.' Amos was getting into the story now, easing into it as he might put on a glove and telling it slowly and completely. And him yelling out crazy at first and then later babbling like a baby about how he was going to die, about what the thing was doing to him under the water and why we didn't help him. Whatever it was, kept hold on him for a night and a morning. Sunday morning. He turned his body again so that he could see me. It was mocking us, holding him like that it was an unholy thing and i'll never forget it old joe was stuck out in the water right in the floodlights we had put on him that night and all he was just held there like i said all the men on shore watching feeling hopeless because we couldn't do nothing we couldn't save joe we tried hard we got nowhere then we got to just sitting there waiting not even moving hardly just staring at him in the water and him motionless now. And off to the church the women had gone, and they were singing hymns, singing hymns peaceful-like. For Joe, you see. That was a lot of years ago, and I remember it just as clear. It seemed to me that he was breathing heavier now, and sighing a lot. Well, he said, and then stopped. He strained around to look at me again. I don't suppose that your daddy told you any of this, I shook my head, no I didn't think so, he said, he was quiet for a long time, late in the morning the thing, whatever it was started to pull him down and one of the men killed old Joe, just as it took him under, his eyes were glistening now with the memory of it, his hands going in hopeless little circles and I could not help but wonder how his life had been changed, to remember so deeply and to mourn so deeply after so many years. With a shotgun. My God, I said. What could we do? Let it take him? It was his best friend that killed him. But any of us would have done it. None of us would let it get near him or get him under the water alive. Amos shrugged. And then there wasn't even nothing to show that old Joe was ever out there. The water was quiet. And he was gone. That's a horrible story, I managed. And somehow I felt more concern for Joe Michaels, gone nearly 15 years, than for myself and my own tale. Seems so unfair. It's true, he said. It's a true story. He was quiet for a few moments. Well that just sort of took the heart out of the town some people did leave like i said he paused your daddy took his family he managed to smile and reached over and patted my leg gently those who stayed shunned the river completely and no one told anyone outside garlock's bend i may seem foolish now but it's the truth it was sort of like a sickness or a disease we all shared and didn't want anyone to hear of. I don't know what to say. Well, that ain't the whole of the story. Not for me, anyway. Not by a long shot. Other things started to happen. And nobody can be sure, but it seemed like there were some... some tunnels, sort of, and the... Hell, I don't know the thing. Ah, look, I said. You... No, he said. No, I want to tell you. It just sounds so... He took a long breath. Some minutes passed. I had the curious feeling of being high in the air looking down at the two of us, sitting on that little bench in the sunlight, for all the world like two people in casual conversation. All around us in the Oak Grove, students and teachers were walking, talking, full of their own pleasures and problems, oblivious to what we were saying. One of the tunnels was in that house up there, he said, pointing, up on Cedar Hill, and another was downstream in the valley. Bad things happened in those houses. He pulled out a huge red handkerchief and wiped his eyes. Then... Then my wife and son, Harold... He began to shake violently. Ah, God, he wailed. He was only four... He wept for a few moments. Well, he said finally, they come up missing, and see, and I couldn't find them for a couple of days, and I was just crazy over it. He was heaving now, heaving with the anguish of his story, and weeping openly, and wiping his eyes with those great, gnarled hands. Bill Miller and Luther Amey, three days after that, even found them wanted so badly to say the right thing, I could find no words. Found them by accident, he said, down in the cellar of the church, by a big busted-out place in the wall. He paused once more. Somehow, when he began to speak again, it was almost matter of fact, almost as if he were denying that any of it had ever actually happened. They had gone down there for some reason, I don't know. He shrugged. Why wouldn't they? When they were... They... He shook his head again in that stiff way he had. The men, they wouldn't let me down there. Suddenly, he was wringing his hands. I wanted to get them. I swear I did. They were my family. But they wouldn't let me. He had to stop again for a few moments. Ah, mister... Listen, he said, turning toward me, I wanted to, I really, it was my, it was so. He was sobbing freely now. I found myself holding the hand of this stranger, weeping also. Weeping for him, weeping for his kin, weeping for the tears of things. Well, he said, summoning himself. They got some guys to go down there, don't ask me how. It was just white with fear. They went, and then they just pushed everything into the hole. The big blocks, some big rocks they brought down, the mud, everything. Just pushed it all in. They put the sandstone blocks back, and then they bricked it all up. Fast. He wiped his eyes again and stuffed his handkerchief back into his overall pocket. Some grave, he said bitterly. He sat quietly for a few moments and I did not speak. I really did try to go down there, he said coldly. I'm sure you did, I said. I was stunned by what I had heard, hardly able to comprehend how he felt as he finished talking or must have felt so many years before. There was nothing I could say to him. I looked up, startled at the idle whistling of a passerby. Well he said finally. We figured to dam up the Narrows down below town enough to flood at least the church tunnel. And I can't even say why. We spent most of one day doing that. Seems foolish now. It was something to do, I guess. You know how you get. Again he turned his body to face me. More of it got out then, and people really up and left after that. I guess they figured enough was enough. I listened to his story, hardly able to believe it and yet not able to disbelieve it. I heard him say something about locking doors in homes no one would ever enter again, and the town emptying forever without a word to anyone outside Garlock's Bend about the thing that was out in the lake. Now I only vaguely heard what he was saying through his final tears. I was trying to deal one last sad time with all of the memories that his story of so long ago brought back to me. I relived once again the awesome thumps, the crumpled patch, and the filthy smells of rot. Once again, I clung in desperation to that tree outside the church, heaving for fresh air, awed by the bitter irony of the quiet lake and the green summer hills. And I remembered that sudden deep swirl in the water. How innocent, and how like a gust of air, it seemed to be. Thank you for joining us for this episode of A Gate Beyond. Join us again in two weeks for more tales of the unusual and otherworldly, gathered from the farthest reaches, the human imagination. Until then, always... Go Beyond. Produced and edited by Danny Atwell, Agate Beyond is a production of Dark Charm Media. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.